Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. Therapy Notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals, just keeps getting better and better. With legendary customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're giving you all the tools you need to succeed, whether you're a solo clinician or a group practice. Try them free for two months using promo code MODERN today. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back, Modern Therapists. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Widhelm with Katie Vernoy. One of the things that we've recognized across all of the number of podcasts that we've done and engaging with a number of our audience members, all of the work that we're doing with our Therapy Reimagined Conference is acknowledging and really emphasizing the field of therapy to represent the people who are entering into the field and noticing that there are lots of very intelligent and qualified people coming from all sorts of diverse backgrounds who enter into our field. And some time ago, one of our listeners reached out to us on our social media and suggested that one of the issues faced by some of our modern therapists is entering into this field coming from a different country and especially into the American therapy system and some specific concerns around will a foreign accent prevent me from being able to get a job or how will it affect my clients in hearing something that doesn't have that American sound to it. And Katie and I being very American and white and having no experience in this whatsoever <laughs> ourselves looked around our community and we were very fortunate enough today to be joined by Namrin Dani, one of our favorite people in all of the therapist Facebook group sphere and uh, just a, a wonderful human being. But talking about her experience in coming to America and being out and proud with an accent and really living her modern therapist life. So thank you so much for joining us, Nam. Hi, Kurt. Hi, Katie. Thank you so much for inviting me. And thank you for this incredible topic. Whoever that listener was, if this listener was listening, uh, my gosh, we need to talk about this more. So thank you for both. We're so excited that you're joining us for the Therapy Reimagine Conference coming up very, very soon. And the first question we ask everyone is, who are you and what are you putting out into the world? I love that question so much more than give us a quick little intro. Who am I? I am many things for the context of this podcast. I am Nam and I am an Indian born, Indian raised, Indian trained 
psychotherapist who now is also trained in the American education system and has two businesses. One business is a therapy practice where I specialize in providing therapy to other therapists and to men who are battling with shame and trauma. And my second business is a relationship coaching business for, again, specializing in men who are in high pressure jobs, business owners, doctors, entrepreneurs. What am I putting out in this world? To be the most succinct I can humanly be is taking away the stigma of being vulnerable by my style and and my mission is to make being vulnerable a bold experience. So bold vulnerability is what I stand for, for what my practice stands for and how I work with my clients. You had mentioned before, and we've known you off the podcast for a while now, that you were trained as a mental health professional before even coming to America. And in addition to all of the barriers of of becoming an immigrant and going through all of the steps for that, there's also some barriers that you've experienced of entering into the mental health profession despite being a professional already. Can you tell us a little bit about what your experience was with that? Yes. So I started my career. I saw my first client in India when I was 21 years old. It was 17, 18 years ago. And I was trained in India. I had almost the same training that you would get in the United States, but in India. And I was seeing clients for about three straight years before moving here. And when I applied, I came here to go to graduate school. And when I applied to, to be part of programs here, I was unanimously met with a lot of excitement in all phone interviews because I couldn't do in person. I was in India. And the excitement was that I was from India and I was going to bring in this diversity and all of this cultural nuance, except every single university and every single program said, however, this is what the U.S. system considers as adequate undergrad training. And so we see that you're, you're practicing and you have all of this great experience, but in, in the United States, that doesn't translate. And so I had to move here and get trained again. I went to graduate school again to learn what I already knew. I, I knew it differently, but um, I had to get an entirely new graduate training experience because my training and education in India didn't count. So I had to start over. That seems like it would be so tough to have to start from square one. It really was because, so as an immigrant, when I came in here and I found myself in a graduate program amongst other aspiring therapists, there was an instant sense of familiarity. We all wanted to do the same work. But I remember the struggle to have to fit in, not only as someone with an accent and someone who came from across the globe, but also someone who wasn't actually starting from square one. Mm -hmm. Um, There was nobody in the program who was already a therapist learning how to be a therapist again. Um, And so for me, one of the toughest things was to not become the obnoxious Indian student who goes, oh, I know. Yeah, I know that. <laughs> I know that. But then also not become the immigrant woman who completely dims herself to let everyone in the room know that I don't know anything just like you don't know anything, right? Mm, um, yeah. And that struggle has been, it's ongoing in every room with 
with American trained therapists, I almost always subconsciously tiptoe and kind of balance that from, oh, I come from a different culture and we cover this in depth, but here you don't and here it's really exciting and new. And so I need to find a way to, to shut up just enough, but then also not completely become invisible in the knowledge and experience I do have. Having been trained overseas and then having to redo the training here, what what were some of the differences in the education that you noticed, either in things that are specifically taught here that you didn't get in your education in India and vice mm-hmm. versa, of things that you had learned there that just seemed to be either missed or glossed over in the way that American therapists are educated? So the immediate and the most distinct difference, Katie and Kurt, is therapy training in India starts off by putting you in an expert position because culturally India is about, you know, doctors and experts. It's, there is a hierarchy and there's a power imbalance and that is accepted. So Indian training to become a therapist immediately began with almost letting us know we were like doctors and we are supposed to know it all. However, in the process of the training, um, and each professor will kind of have their own style to do this, it's about kind of turning that around a little bit where you respect the knowledge that you have, but you never, ever, ever, ever forget that you're a person and so is your client. And so you start off with this very didactic expert-based training, but then as you proceed, um, you're very openly told that, you know, ask to be invited to go to a client's home. And, and a good way to really figure out what family therapy dynamic is like is to join them for dinner. And here in your practicum, these are all of, you know, the hours you will have to spend hanging out with your clients, essentially. So it kind of starts off like that and then focuses heavily on being a person. My experience in the American graduate training was a lot of talk about being client-centered and never in always being human and always thinking about that, but then also instilling so much fear into you that the person of the therapist and the person behind the client is actually invisible. There are so many rules, so many regulations, not all of them that necessarily fit or help, that I constantly felt I craved the permission to just be a human being with my client after I moved here, which was very easily and readily available and and recommended in India. Thryzer is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thryzer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate up front. From the client's perspective, Thryzer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thryzer manages the claims end-to-end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thryzer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thryzer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists 
to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. It's so interesting when you're talking about that model of going to a client's home for dinner, spending hours hanging out with your clients, those types of things. And maybe that's why some of the stuff that we've been talking about lately, the person of the therapist, being a human being with your clients resonates so well for me because that was my training too. I did all milieu settings. So I was hanging out with clients. I was eating food with them. Like you learn so much from clients when you're actually present with them. And when I started talking about those types of things with clinicians who had not had those same experiences like you, it was like, you know, that's a dual relationship. And it's so we have to be so cautious about how we interact with our clients. And, you know, what if they don't want this? Or what if they don't want that? And it's so culturally insensitive in a lot of places, but it's also, it dehumanizes us. So it seems like it would have been, now my assumption is that the nom now is maybe not exactly the same as the nom who first (laughs) came to the U.S. uh, education system, but I can imagine you railing against that system about how ineffective work will be if we are not human beings together. What did you, what did you do at that time? Because I know developmentally you were a different place, so I don't want to put anything <laughs> on that. But, but like, what did you do as a student with that walking the line between both? Um, Katie, I would love to say that I was as bold as I now am and I was able to speak up and against all of it. I did the exact opposite. I bowed my head um, and did whatever I needed to do that whatever uh, every white professor told me I needed to do just so that I could get my degree and get out. Um, Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean the internal turmoil wasn't significant. I was actually depressed for most of my time in graduate school. And the times that I did speak up, it led to a lot of chaos in the system. But for the most part, I quickly learned that the best way to the best way to be a, a therapist who's trained in India and now in the in the American system and having to become a therapist with every other American therapist is to buy your head and shut up. Um, I mm. wish I hadn't done that. To be honest, if I was now in graduate school, I would confidently say I think the training program would wind up being different by the time I left um, (laughs) because I would speak up. But back then I was the good immigrant, stay quiet and just do what they tell you to do and then get out. Seems like, you know, this is maybe a, a present bias of, of the past and not that any of us are particularly old that our, our graduate training having been at least recent enough to know that some of the lingering things are still present there's probably a lot of these same barriers still faced by international students in, in our training programs. What would have been supportive for you having gone through that, that today's students, today's pre-licensees would feel confident to be able to step up and make those changes that in retrospect, you wish that you could have made? My immediate answer That's a really good question. I find myself thinking about it some. Um, My immediate answer is find one person in the system that is safe. And it needs to be someone in the graduate or supervisory role who is in a a position of power and privilege. And, And then go to them and speak to them. Because my impulse is to say, well, don't care about anything and, and just go ahead and 
and speak your mind. Let people know. I, in my graduate training, am, am a full-blown victim of systemic abuse. I didn't get my doctorate two semesters from finishing because of racism and because of systemic abuse that most don't know about. Um, and so what I would tell anyone in that system at that level is to find a safe voice that will help bolster and kind of make your voice be known. Do not do it alone because it would be naive to think that we don't live in an oppressive system. We do. And the best way to deal with it is to speak up, but be smart about it. Does that make sense? It makes sense. And I think, you know, this is where so much of the the efforts that Katie and I have put forth and knowing our places of privilege, but also knowing the limitations that we have as far as being, you know, all of the privileged places in society that, that mm-hmm. we represent, that, you know, as best as we can to make those efforts, that we also know that there's a whole lot that we don't see just based on not having experienced those firsthand. And you know, I do see in some of the institutions that I'm involved with now making strides to make it easier for students to step up. And I think that in any sort of change of systems, it's going to take a lot longer than most of us are, are going to experience. And unfortunately, that length of time is something that a lot of those systems are just able to wait us out on. But I think the really important piece in this here that is we're doing work behind the scenes is we're encouraging students to step up in this is to acknowledge and accept that this takes time and it takes somebody to speak up and somebody to continue to speak up and to have people in those positions of privilege to help leverage their power in order to make those changes happen. It's I think what you're saying there, Kurt, is so on point with um, how long it takes and and also how many facets this this kind of impacts. I remember for me, my first jolt of I am not in India and I have to figure this out moment was the very first paper I was asked to write as a graduate training therapist uh, in my MFT theories course was how, you know, who I am and how my life experiences have shaped who I am and the therapist I want to become. So it was fairly personal in writing. And I was very proud of the paper I wrote. I was very bold and vulnerable, and I thought I had done a pretty good job. I was excited to get that paper back. And when I got it back, it had a C on it. I think it was a C or a C minus. And there was a note attached that said that the only reason I had a passing grade on it was because I did the assignment. Oh, my god! But the gosh. reason I had gotten a C was because I hadn't written it in APA style. Oh, now wow. here, here is the <laughs> Oh my gosh. For, for con- people who come from other countries, when we hear APA style, I'll be honest, we don't want to punch people in the face because what does that actually mean? You're telling us that we need to write American. What does that even mean? Um, <laughs> or it makes us feel really, really small. And ashamed. My story, my thoughts, my ideas were completely dismissed because of syntax and formatting. And that's such a small but I think significant example of what it is that people who come from other countries have to deal with. I wish that professor had pulled me aside and said, hey, this is really great. This is how we write here. Do you need some help figuring that out Um, or anything to that effect? 
but instead I had that grade that now permanently affected my record, right? Well, and to, I mean, like the whole thing, just I, I'm, I'm having trouble forming words because I'm so angry. I think the, the piece that blows my mind is that it was a paper on how your experiences impact you. How, like, oh. how do you even grade a paper like that? Like, this is a reflection. This is like a journal article, like a journal writing, right? Like, like you're writing in your journal. I'm, I'm not speaking well. And so for, for that to come back with, you only got a passing grade because you did it, but you did it wrong, and it's about you personally, and that it's really about syntax and grammar and not about the content. Mm-hmm. That just blows me away. Like, just that's so... <sighs> I need a, I need a moment. Yeah, it, it says so much, right? We need you to edit who you are and then we will accept what it is that you have to say. That is the immigrant fit, experience. We need you to fit in this box mm-hmm. and then we'll look at you to see if you're okay. Mm-hmm. We won't even it look happened, at you unless you're in this box. It happened later and I won't name the site because they got into a lot of legal um, trouble, but I had to go on an immediate leave of absence from my first practicum site. Um, I was already seeing clients because I was an immigrant. I didn't have a social security number, didn't know I needed one. And they found out later that I didn't have one for their application process. And so I had a supervisor pull me aside and say, your clients have been informed. You need to leave the building now because we're not supposed to have you here. You don't have a social security number. And I remember in tears asking, how do I get one? And he said, go online, Uh, which is true. That's how you find out. But again, when you have a student who's an immigrant that you feel so stoked about, because professors, supervisors always feel so great. Oh my gosh, the diversity in our program now is so high because of that one person, (laughs) right? We become a badge. Um, uh, if nice not a token. token. Yep. Uh, but when it comes to to places and spaces where our immigrant identity is going to be a problem, the way you respond to that is where the change needs to occur. And that's one of the things that consistently is missing in, in professional organizations. It's the, the process and the system will not be edited. We will ask to edit who you are and how you are existing in our space. Well, and I'm hearing two things. I'm hearing that the system's just jacked up and we know that. Sure. But I'm also hearing that even if this is what's required by the system, right? If this is, we need you to have a social security number. We need you to write an APA style. Like even if that's true and we don't change that or we don't change that immediately, or aren't able to change, or whatever it is. It's about the response to help to navigate the system, not to say, well, you're on your own. That's outside of my purview. Mm-hmm. Or even mm-hmm. just you're on your own. You're, you're non-compliant, so go fix it. Yes, go fix it. And when you're an immigrant, it's a terrifying process because where do I go to fix it? I don't know. Yeah. And you're, you're hoping to get some support with that, but That was not your experience. And it sounds like it's not a common experience that people are given support to navigate that. Uh. So somehow you dealt with this. Mm -hmm. You continued on this training track. Mm -hmm. And I want to go to kind of the next stage of your career of, of getting placements, getting jobs. 
speaking to this concern of does being a foreigner, does an accent get in the way, at least based on the experiences that you've had? Yes, it does get in the way. And it would be naive to think that it doesn't. I think the key, and this is something that has helped me out to navigating that, is to not be quiet and invisible about it. So, Kurt, in my intro, you said that I'm out and proud with my accent. There has yet to be a professional interview or it's actually in my consult call with clients where I will very casually say something like, well, this this is a strange experience. You have to talk to a stranger and a stranger with an accent about all of your secrets. So I get it if that's weird. And by doing that, it's it's kind of going a step ahead and calling this out in the room that I know I'm I'm a foreigner, I'm different, and I know I speak differently. You don't have to pretend like I don't, and you don't have to be weird about it, because I'm gonna let you know that I know this. And it's to me, it's taking a leadership role about every bit of difference that you come into the room with. And if you can own it and if you speak to it before anyone else does in some way, it also keeps you safe. Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. In my life with mm-hmm. any of the things that I, I do those very same principles you know I mm-hmm. lead you know in the intake phone call with here here's something that you might not expect out of my practice out of me there's definitely a after I've learned to do that where it's led to a tremendous amount of success mm-hmm. when did you learn that you had to do that what was the experience that just kind of made you be like I'm so sick of this. I'm just going to end up leading with this and just get this out of the way. It was at the practicum site that I mentioned earlier, which by the way, I was fired from. Oh my <laughs> uh, which gosh. Is a, yeah, which is, a whole, which is a whole other story. But I noticed that my accent, and I think this was an attempt for, for certain supervisors to connect with me. I'm not, I'm not too sure. Maybe I am sure and I'm, and I'm, kind of dismissing that but I was asked to repeat a lot of words but not in the way of oh we don't understand you but oh the way you say that is so funny and it's so cool which is something a lot of people do even in my personal life people will do that often because it's amusing or whatnot but I think what people forget is for those of us who have accents and we come from other countries you are the ones with an accent yes we think this is how everyone talks right in our head and so it was at this site where there was more time often spent on the fact that I said a certain word differently and then asking me questions of where I came from and whatnot than my white colleagues who were asked questions about what they were doing clinically Mm. and so I would wait like when does my supervision begin and when do I stop being a museum specimen and I remember, and then eventually when I, when I was let go from that practicum position and that was the biggest gift ever, I, would not, I was not fitting in there, uh, clearly. But it was that site where I realized 
I am in a different country. This is likely how it's going to be. And I want to get to the clinical part. I'm redoing my training here. I came here to be a therapist. So I'm going to cut those steps out and just let the room know. I know. I know you hear me speak differently. Ha ha ha. Very funny. Um, Can we get to the important stuff now? You use the word safer. And that really struck me. And, and I think you're starting to get to that point, but it feels more than just let me get to the clinical training. What do you mean by it feels safer to, to call it out at the beginning? I think it's part of, of what I address as immigrant trauma, which is kind of like if you've been in a dark alley and something bad happens, um, one of the ways some people might cope with that is the next time or once they deal with the healing and whatnot, you go with a flashlight, you have someone go with you to feel better about the space that you got really hurt in. Similarly, whenever I'm in the presence, less now, definitely more in the early parts of my career in this country, for me to feel it was like it was okay to walk into this dark alley where the way I speak and the way I, I look and the way I work is going, to, is going to be jabbed at, a way to feel safer about it is to carry this flashlight. Because if I don't, I don't know where these people in positions of white power are going to go with the fact that I'm different. And so what if I just lead it? And it, it actually started from a really scared place and much less a defiant one. The defiance came as I got bolder and more confident. But initially it was, if I just get this out of the way, then I'll feel better. I'll feel safer here because I'm the one bringing it up. Are there other things that came up through your experience? I mean, the, the accent is an easy thing to point at that's tangible, that most people are going to notice that's othering of you. Are there other things that we aren't even aware of that also is faced by people who've come here to go through these trainings, to serve in this profession that have gotten in the way that are further othering. Yes. A distinct and an important one, especially if you're trained in family therapy and couples therapy is despite the fact that I think Eurocentric therapy education does a really good job at addressing the self of the therapist to some extent. What it completely misses when the self of the therapist is brown, for example, is we come from a framework of family that's different, right? Most basic difference would be a collectivist culture, for example. So when we are in graduate training programs and we have to do the infamous role plays, we haven't begun seeing clients yet. The way we are going to approach clients is going to come from from that background of how is it that that we view relationships because we're influenced by the culture we come from. What I really, really wish there was more of was attention given to that, that when I am, I, white professor, am training you to do family therapy, it's based on what my white or American training of what a family system is like is supposed to be. I wish there was more pause in checking in with therapists in training or even therapists later in their career to ask them what their model of normal is. What is their model of typical family life? What is their their version of even diagnosis and illness like? That question doesn't exist. There is the assumption that this is how we do it. 
please fit in. And in doing that, there is a really tragic editing of expertise, skill, and different ways of doing therapy that gets completely missed. Does that make sense? I'm just more angry listening to you than <laughs> in, in a logical sense because I know of many, you know, being a marriage and family therapist myself, working in graduate level education, I know many wonderful family therapists, family systems therapists who serve in education roles that would absolutely agree with you Mm -hmm. and still have their hands tied by the curriculum that Mm -hmm. is laid out either legislatively or in, in the program that they're working in that keeps, keeps those hands tied, keeps it being in the same way that it is just because it's not even up to the individual educator in those capacities Mm -hmm. that this is a systemic issue that leads to that continued white supremacy. Yes. 100%. And that's why I think the change is systemic, which means it's going to take more time and it's going to take more work. But when we talk about these big goals of systemic change, it's still people who make them up, right? It's bigger groups of more powerful people. But if the conversations are not had, and if topics like the one we're covering today are not paid attention to, how do we get to systemic change? It's not robots that sit on a table and kind of chalk out policies. It's human beings. That DSM that we all bow down to was made up of a group of people. Yes. Originally didn't know what, you know, much about what else could exist. And so... The systemic change piece is big and it's daunting, but it's still us that can influence it. We need more people to talk about this. We need more people like you two asking about this so that we can get to systemic levels of change. So we've talked about the system, especially related to the educational system. We've talked about your journey as an individual, but also as a clinician and how you've called out the elephant in the room. I don't even know if that's the right thing, but, but taking leadership around your identity, how you show up, the accent, the, the viewpoint, all of those different things. When we're looking at you as a private practitioner, and so we, we're moving into the next stage of your career, we look at the private practitioner element of this. I think there are probably individuals who might be concerned that their identity, whatever that identity is, is going to impact their ability to get clients or to, or to work with clients who are different than them. And mm-hmm. so what I'm looking at is how, how do you approach your private practice, given who you are, with your accent, with your perspective, and how do clients mm-hmm. respond to you? So I'm going to answer quickly, but in two parts. First part was really, really messy. And this is vulnerable for me to share. I've actually spent actual time talking to my blue-eyed Minnesotan white American husband about the way I, I would say certain words. What I was asking him questions about was how do I change the way I say certain words so that when I get clients into my practice, they understand me. Now that causes, like I feel pain just thinking about it because of who I was. And he was great. He he, you know, shook his head and he was like, that's not happening. <laughs> Your accent is amazing. <laughs> um, Yay for Jamie. Thank goodness. 
but I didn't stop there. I right now in this interview, there are words that that I have to catch myself in saying differently because now I'm in a place where I, I'm not going to pay attention to that. But in my early parts of my career, this difference was so big and so scary um, that I was trying to learn how to speak differently. Now, in private practice and being a brown business owner, there is a beauty and a gift for every person with anything that makes them different. And being in the, in the entrepreneurial or private practice world, which is you shape it to fit you in these areas. My practice does not, non-negotiably, does not attract clients who are going to make my accent a thing. There are, there are clients who are going to be human and kind of point it out or say something about it. I've had to do enough work internally to know that they're not jabbing or poking fun at what I'm saying, but they're feeling safe in being able to tell me that I didn't understand that thing you said, or, oh, wow, you say that so differently. And it mm -hmm. comes out very differently because they're my ideal clients. I've shaped my business to, to now attract people who are going to be safe for me as a therapist, not just me being safe for them. But early on, this was, this was a concern. Early on in practicum life where you don't choose the clients you want, I had some pretty racist people just kind of poke fun or, or, or say something about the way I was saying. Even now, I occasionally will get calls from psychology today from people. And I can tell that the moment they hear my accent, they've decided that they're not going to continue the call. Some will be polite in saying, oh, you know, I'm looking for someone with etc. Occasionally, I'll get a person who says, oh, I want someone who doesn't sound like you. That's actually mm. happened. Okay. Um, or I'll, I'll find someone who will talk really loudly because for some reason, people with accents are considered to be hearing impaired too. <laughs> I don't understand it. That happens. <laughs> or really slowly, or I will have to repeat words that I know were clear. Mm right? Mm -hmm. And that's where I start screening the client as well, going, if this is going to be a thing, I'm not the person for you. Yeah. But for the most part, the more confident you get about the thing that makes you different, the more you learn how to lead with it, and the more you learn to love it. I love my accent. If I ever go full American, I've told my family to like do something about it. <laughs> more Bollywood movies. I don't know. I never want to lose it. Uh, but this is this is a journey. This comes over time and it comes with a lot of hurt, pain, and then the confidence you build through that. Early on, this was a struggle. Now my practice is created to respect the fact that I'm an immigrant. I'm brown. I don't sound like everyone else. And that's an awesome thing. Thank you so much for joining us today. Where can people find out more about you and your practice? So a great way to find out more about me and my practice is www.soulnarratives.com, S-O-U-L-N-A-R-R-A-T-I-V-E-S.com or namrandani.com. I'm also widely available on social media. That is totally my thing. I love talking to new people. So finding me on Facebook under Namrandani is a really cool way to get to know who I really am too, because I'm pretty open up there. And we'll include links to those on our show notes. You can find those at mtsgpodcast.com. As we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, Nam is also joining us for a very cool part of Therapy Reimagined 2020. 
our virtual conference on Friday, September 25th. Nam is facilitating our erasure and exclusion panel. And this is a panel of very wonderful mental health professionals who are talking about coming into this field from kind of those non-white, non-historically systemic places in our field, uh, some of the barriers that they face into becoming professionals or that clients coming from those very same backgrounds face in receiving mental health services. I am truly excited. You know, I talk in every one of our interviews with some of our guests and say, you know, I'm really excited about these talks. I honestly am. But this is the the panel that I am most looking forward to when it comes to this conference and really loving that Nam and her role is going to do such a wonderful job with it and really glad to have her as part of our therapist community. So thank you so much for joining us today and check out therapyreimaginedconference.com for your tickets. And until next time, I'm Kurt Woodhelm with Katie Renoy and Nam Rindani. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Thanks so much to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code modern gets you two free months.